This is To Live in Law in L.A., a Nixon Peabody podcast. Imagine the country you live in becomes unstable, and you're scared for your life. You have nowhere to go to, no one to turn to, and the threat of torture or death hangs over your head every single day. But there's hope. There's a country that promises shelter to people like you, if you can prove you're in danger. So you decide to give up everything you've ever known. Your friends, your family, your home, all of your belongings, maybe even your language. And you travel halfway around the world to go to this new country and seek asylum. When you arrive at the border with your proof, rather than having it looked over or appearing in front of a judge, you're driven hundreds of miles away and tossed in a jail cell. Food is provided inconsistently, and if you complain, maybe it stops coming altogether. You and hundreds of others are kept in a cell for weeks without changes of clothes until scabies and chickenpox break out. There's no windows or clocks, so you lose track of time. You don't know where you are, why you're here, or if you're ever going to be let go. And as far as you're concerned, you never even committed a crime. If this sounds like a third world country, it's not. This is what's happening right here in the United States, just outside of Los Angeles, in Victorville, California. It's happening to thousands of asylum seekers right as you listen to this. My name is Neil Gauger, and I'm a criminal defense litigator here at Nixon Peabody. When I read about this in the LA Times, I volunteered to help the ACLU by visiting the Victorville prison, one of the dozens of temporary overflow detainee camps, to see for myself what was happening and if I could help. Today, we tell that story. Welcome. This is To Live in Law in L.A. I'm Aaron Bryan, a litigation attorney here at Nixon Peabody. Hi, I'm Shannon Egan, a banking and finance attorney here at Nixon Peabody. Welcome. This is Jay Turnervand, a public finance attorney here at Nixon Peabody. And I'm Neil Gauger, and I'm a criminal defense litigator here at Nixon Peabody. Before we get started, I just want to say it is nice to have all four of us in the room together. We don't do a lot of shows when it's just the four of us, but this is this is nice. The topic's not that um, much fun to talk about, but the we'll get to that good. in a minute. <laughs> right, so, right. uh, so the three of us, not Neil, are here to talk to Neil about his recent experience at the federal prison in Victorville, California. And for those of you who don't know, Victorville's a couple hours northeast of Los Angeles. It's a town of 100, 125,000 people, and there is a federal prison. And like a lot of prisons in the country right now, it is housing people who have been detained under recent policy changes. And Neil, through his um, work with the ACLU, was able to visit the prison, meet with someone there who is being held, uh, a person who is seeking asylum. And Neil's here to tell us a little bit about that experience and more broadly about the issue facing people like the person you you met with. Yeah, absolutely. So, Neil, how did you get involved with this work? I mean, why now, right? This problem that's been going on for, I mean, for decades, right? But why now? Why now did you step in and head to the prison to help out this person seeking asylum? Well, it, it's been a natural evolution of some of the work we've done in the immigration sector here okay. at Nixon Peabody. Um, you know, we were one of the first firms to have people on the ground right after the travel ban went in place. Okay. Uh, so we, we had folks down at LAX and other airports. You know, we, we're very involved in these issues. I sometimes will go out and give talks to the community on different immigration issues. But But what's happening with the detainees right now was especially affecting to me. The the treatment was essentially folks being screamed at, food taken away as punishment, people being called dogs, people being 
piled into dark rooms and held there with no real instructions. And it was mm-hmm. something that, um, it, I don't know, it, it, it struck me in a different way. It's worth noting, too, that the ACLU has taken exactly the stance that you're kind of pointing out here, right? So the people who are being held at Victorville were not being able to communicate with attorneys or weren't having any legal access, right? Right. And so the courts have said that what's happening at Victorville is not acceptable. Right. And there's a restraining order against Victorville in particular right. so that they can have access to people like you. And I think this is the program that you were visiting Victorville under. Is that correct? Yeah, that, that's correct. Because and, if they yeah. are criminals or if they are doing something illegally, right, then right. They're, like you said, there should be a process for that, well, right? Due process. Every, right. Yeah. Every, every person accused of a crime in the United States is entitled to due process. It's, right. it's a constitutional right. Yeah, because you know? it's irrelevant to this discussion whether or not they should be crossing the border, right? right? That's a different discussion. What this really is about is they've crossed the border. Now what happens? Right. And we are detaining people at much higher rates than previous administrations and under previous policies, right? I can only really speak to the system currently. And the system, system currently is, in my perception, painting with a broader brush. Victorville is not where people are being kept because they're going to see a judge the next day. Victorville is essentially an overflow tank. There's a backlog. So we have a bigger issue of how to get more people due process in this context. It's it's more complicated now, right? It, it is, because at the end of the day, you have to make a determination. How are we going to classify right. this person? How are you going to mm-hmm. treat them? If they're going to be an asylum seeker, treat them as an asylum seeker. If they're going right. to be a criminal, then treat them as a criminal and run them through a proper process. Right. But right now, there's just this it's limbo. Lower than, it's, it's, lo- it's lower than that. They're yeah, it's a limbo. These folks get transported to these uh, essentially detention camps within the federal prison system. And I can say, for example, with the gentleman that I spoke with, I was the first person who had interviewed him of, in any capacity. Border Patrol hadn't interviewed him. ICE hadn't interviewed him. He had never seen a judge. He had never been assigned a lawyer. Mm-hmm. And he had been to multiple facilities uh, before okay. he got to Victorville. So, again, I, I would ask you to put yourself in this person's feet that you're not only in a strange country we don't speak the language no one's telling you what's going on no one's telling you where you are what's happening and you're essentially getting transported and picked up at will right and and so i was the first person to provide some context to what was going on it's not an inconsequential amount of time that's passed either it's not like it's been you know hours and within a day he's been transferred no you're talking you're talking roughly maybe four, six, ten days in each facility before you get moved. If it worked normally, because this is not just some made-up thing. I mean, these are international agreements that the U.S. agreed to. It's enacted under congressional law. Mm-hmm. I mean, asylum is, is a real thing, and there are real protections that are supposed to exist for people that come here with legitimate concern about what might happen to them if they stay where they're from. What's supposed to happen, you would have a proceeding to determine whether or not your asylum claim is legitimate whether it has gravity and value sufficient to justify you staying in the United States. And if not, then you would be deported, right? And so the problem is when by the time, if, if, if I'm, if I, a volunteer attorney, after an ACLU lawsuit, after all these other steps, are the first person that someone's talking to, something's right. gone wrong with the system. Right. You don't know, right, whether an, an asylum claim is legitimate until you talk to the person. And because there had been such a radical shift in policy and procedure, and because I really viewed this as improperly using what I view in incarceration to be the most severe of social sanctions, right, the most powerful f- uh, force that a government can have upon its people, right, mm-hmm. or, or upon anyone who's not a citizen, right. <laughs> as we're learning. Um I I wanted to go see it for myself. And the ACLU contacted me 
and essentially said, you know, we're looking for volunteer attorneys to go to meet with people to do intake to learn more about what's going on. And I said, absolutely, I'll do that. And so I, I drove out there. The town kind of fades behind you as it is around most prisons. There's a little bit of nothing you drive through. And then you get to the prison gate and it looks like any other federal prison. For those of us who don't know what that looks like, what is it? Oh, sure. So it's... Uh, <laughs> For the transactional folks. Yeah, yeah, right. All right. yeah that's a good point. Um, no, so you, you drive up and um, chain link fence, bunch of signs, no photography. You know, you're under observation and waving a bunch of rights by going onto the ground. You drive down a long driveway through the first line of chain link fence and barbed wire to a guard station. First person I would talk to was essentially uh, the guard who as with any federal prison, is going to check you in, run you through a metal detector, figure out why you're here, who you're here to see, make sure that vet that they're, that you're supposed to be there, that the person you're seeing is actually in, in custody. And so you go through two layers of um, electronic metal doors. You get your hand scanned to make sure it's still you. Then you uh, come out to the, essentially the first courtyard and you pass through another chain link fence, this one covered with eight layers of razor wire. And then you walk across uh, an open courtyard, and then you, that'll take you to the actual, essentially, where the prison really starts. So the message to the people that are being held there yeah. is you're not leaving. Oh, you're not going anywhere. Right? I mean, yeah. the, the, like, visually, the mess. this isn't like right. we're right. just here until we figure out the – like, you're there. It is. It's, it is. It's it is. locked down it is. Yeah. literally and figuratively. But to add an, a layer of, um, I don't know – surreality to the whole situation um as you turn into the visitors area and you go through again some metal doors and emerge into that uh indoor space you are confronted by a uh, i'm going to say 20 to 25 30 foot mural of disneyland oh my god no and tinkerbell flying through the sky and a huge banner that says welcome to california as part of the mural on the wall. And now was that designed specifically for them or? I think it's mostly, and, and this is not unusual in a federal prison setting so that when folks, co- you know, children come to visit right. their father in prison, uh, it's a list. This isn't such a threatening space. It's whatever yeah. else. After the 15 metal detectors. After, right. Yeah. And the razor wire and everything else. So after being in this, uh, you know, I guess entranceway and you see the giant Disneyland poster and boggles your mind. Um, we were led into a small room where we could meet with the detainee that we were going to meet with. It was me and a college student who was serving as my translator because uh, the individual I spoke with and many individuals spoke no English at all. Um, and this is not, by the way, only an issue of identifying people who speak Spanish. I mean, if the ACLU list has been going nuts the last couple of weeks trying to find people who speak uh, Punjabi and people who speak French. And Mandarin is a huge demand mm-hmm. to find a Mandarin translator, again, out in the desert in Victorville. And uh, we we sat down in there, it's all plastic lawn furniture because you can't have any sharp objects or anything else. And they, they brought this young man in and sat down with him. He looked very tired, looked very gaunt, said he hadn't been sleeping at all, you know, for days. And we talked very comprehensively about his experiences, about the very deep threats that he had had before coming to the United States, horrific things that had happened, even more horrific things that had been threatened to him. And he had this sense of optimism, I will say, which is that he, you know, felt he felt that he had a legitimate claim and he was asking me, he says, you know, so when, when do I get to come to America? Like, when, when do I get to 
when is this going to work out for me essentially right he was in his head i think planning for this future right because he envisioned the system in working in a way that he thought it would work for him and there was this anxiety a sense of you know when am i going to get my hearing when is this all going to work out and i had to kind of sit there and say i have no idea you know i have no idea but but look i'm here to shake your hand and i'm here to look you in the eye and say you're on someone's radar that's right you know i was the first person he had talked to there had not been an interview by ice or by border patrol when they were first picked up he wasn't interviewed by any person at the prison system so i was his first real contact with the real world since he had been scooped up at the border and i i can't say that i helped him i can't say that i left and it made his life any better or it reduced whatever injury he would have but there was i think some small piece that i could see in him of just being able to talk to another person and to tell his story and to know he's not just lost in the system there's at least someone trying to keep track of him and if if that's the only difference the whole thing made that would be worth it in theory these people are waiting in victorville for a credible fear hearing yeah right that will be the the first official step yes are they going to be here for six years i mean do we is this a problem that is now just we're kind of it's a new policy change, so we're just sort of scrambling to, to get everything in order. Right. Or this is now what it looks like for people coming to this country seeking asylum. What does the big picture look like? I, I think it's all it's all loosely defined, and I think that's part of what makes this all distressing, is mm-hmm. that this is a system in flux, and it, it is a system where you really get the sense it's being administered in flux. I don't, and is I don't it going to really shift the more pressure people put on it, right? I mean, it's now that ACLU is involved, and you know, if, if people are able to keep the eyes on the situation, will right. it continue to shift? You know? I mean, perhaps, but I, one of the things that struck me the hardest in the whole experience is I kept thinking back to the photographs of Japanese internment mm-hmm. in World War II, and it struck me that these are photographs, right? You, you can, you, you, we can all go now and look and find photographs of these families behind barbed wire fences, right? And the small children. And, and it occurred to me, if you drove past Victorville, you wouldn't know what was inside, right? And so in many ways, my concern for these folks is not only are they getting the process, but in a, in a world of constantly shifting attentions and, and always active news cycles and everything else can society hold its attention on this issue long enough to do something about it because you're never going to see those photographs. You're never going to see the conditions that these folks live in, right? Because they're not documented. They're not public. You can't fly a plane over it and see it in the middle of the desert. You're just going to see, oh, look, there's a federal prison. Those folks are all been convicted. They must have deserved right. it. And that's a heartbreaking thought. And and I think that that, at the end of the day, is what the experience was about for me, which was regardless of whether or not you think these folks should be in the country, right. whatever else, this transcends topics of legality. And this becomes a question of, am I comfortable with my government treating another human being right. in a way that I would not be, that not only would not be comfortable with being treated, but would be screaming bloody murder for? Right. Right. And so... It, it's a, it is a question of humanity. It's a question of universality. It's a question of how are we going to look at ourselves in the mirror as a country? 
mm-hmm. and say that we did this to folks. I mean, we are signatory to international laws that require us to acknowledge refugee status and provide safe place for people seeking asylum. And absolutely to lump them in to a medium security federal prison right. in the desert is an odd way to go about fulfilling that obligation. Right. And I've read articles where the staff of the prison don't want to be doing this. Like, they don't know how to deal right. with Right, and I got this, that sense. These aren't right. inmates. I want to reinforce that the the people on the ground, the, you know, the blue-collar folks, the guards who are there, I really got the sense that they didn't want this either. For the most part, I found that the folks I interacted with were trying to be helpful and that once the ACLU showed up, there was a real shift in treatment, right? Because I think, and I think part of it must be because now there's some oversight over the process. So there's regular meals, uh, there's access to telephones so they can try and call family members if they can try to identify and find people. Um, But certainly uh, there was plenty that was very concerning still. And and to go to the issue of how this might get resolved, it it may get resolved through the court system, right? And ultimately through lawsuits like the lawsuit, I, I think you have to view it in an incremental sense, right? The first step the ACLU here is taking is getting access on the ground. The right. second step is going to be, all right, what is the process and the procedure? And then is that process and pr- procedure valid, right? So, you know, you hear about discussions of eliminating certain categories for uh, asylum, right? And so when you go to the question of, is this an international obligation? If we are now restricting what is considered an asylum secret, does that run into conflict with our further obligations? It runs into due process issues. So I think ultimately, uh, the you know, the courts hopefully will be able to sort this system out. But that takes time. I mean, anyone who's right. spent any time practicing law knows it's not a fast process. And there's going to be a lot of folks who are really run through the ringer in the meantime. And so it goes to this bigger question of humanity. I think what we all try to achieve in the practice of law is to achieve a sense of practicality. And especially in criminal justice, right? It's in the word justice, right? What is a fair result? What is the mm-hmm. right result? And often, I think that correlates with this sense of what is a humane result. Right. And so the question is, if there's someone like individuals that we talked to who said, someone said they're going to kill me and they horrifically injured family members of mine and they were coming for me next and I had to get out of there, is there a real benefit in now putting them into a box out in the desert? For months. For months, right. right. And so I think we've lost sight of this. Why are we doing this, right? What what is immigration policy supposed to achieve? And ultimately, we have to reconcile that with what's going to be effective and meet our obligations, mm-hmm. but also, you know, what we can look in the mirror and and be okay with. Right. Yeah, and I guess to some extent that requires knowledge. It requires knowledge. And and that's why I think we all wanted to do this podcast episode, right? Which right. is to make sure that this conversation is ongoing, to bring it into the public sphere and to keep it in the public sphere, yeah. right? When there's always new news that'll push this off the front page and you have an ongoing, essentially humanitarian crisis, it deserves attention, it demands attention. And I'm very proud that this firm is committed to being a part of drawing them. This has been To Live in Law in L.A., produced and edited by Jesse Lumen. If you like this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and comment on iTunes or sharing it on social media. If you have any questions, please email us at livelawla at nixonpeabody.com or visit livelawla.com to find out more. 
This podcast has been presented by Nixon Peabody LLP, but the content is meant simply for educational purposes. And accordingly, the views expressed do not reflect the views of Nixon Peabody and are not intended to provide or should be construed as legal advice. This podcast is not intended, nor does it create any lawyer-client relationship. Listeners should seek their own counsel and should not act in reliance on anything expressed by the presenters. To the extent that this podcast may constitute attorney advertising under various state ethics rules, we note that any prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome.